0: Hi, I'm JY Obane, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molli, your host. Today I chat to JY Obane. J.Y. was a promising player. More recently, he spent four years as a travelling coach at Riley Opelka. And even more recently, he's introduced a little baby into the world. We chat about his young tennis days, college days, decision to go pro, life on the road at Riley, his good and bad times with him, what he's learned from Riley, as well as what J.Y. is up to now, that he's spending more time at home with his newborn baby and not travelling. Before we kick things off, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. I've mentioned this over the past few episodes. Check out their new site, slingerbag.com, where they have a new community section with drills, helping you get the most out of your Slinger Bag, as well as weekly tips from their team of pros, coaches, and experts. And also, we've pre-launched our new camera mount. It's the perfect tool for helping you to record your tennis, and actually ties in with the latter part of this episode, where JY talks a lot about recording your tennis. You can head over to functionaltennis.com to check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. I can help you with that or with the slinger bag. And every order this March will receive a free Halo Hydration sample pack. Halo Hydration is a great hydration product that I've used myself. They did send me some, but I have been using it. I think it's great. And Andy Murray is a big user of it. He's actually a partner also invested in it, but it can be used on and off the court. It contains the right vitamins, minerals, electrolytes that you need to perform at your best. It also tastes great and it's low in sugar. Sounds like the dream product. It's really nice and check it out. There are some sashes included with each order this month. Okay, let's jump into our chat with JY. Hi JY. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you?
0: I'm good, Fabio. How are you?
1: Absolutely amazing. The summer, well it's early summer here. with well, spring, but you know the days are longer, more sunshine. You can start playing a bit of tennis outdoors. So all good. Tell us, where are you?
0: So, I, I live in Atlanta, but right now I'm in Miami visiting family. The newborn baby just had his shots a couple of days ago. So, as soon as he got his shots to give us the all clear to see family and friends, we went boom, straight back to Miami because that's where our family's from.
1: Nice. And any tennis work in M- Miami at all?
0: So, n- not on court, but, you know, I, I do have an online website where I, I can work with. Uh, players virtually, watching their matches, giving them feedback. So I I, I am doing that.
1: We'll get to more of that in a while. But first of all, you you mentioned Atlanta. I know a few Irish guys have trained over there. I think you know Joe Dwyer. I'm not sure. James McGee, he did a bit of training Of course I know James. Yep. Yeah, James is a good friend of mine. Was there Richie Martin? Does he ring any bells?
0: (laughs) I saw Richie a couple of days before I came here. So Richie, yeah, (laughs) long-time friend. Also one of my coaches. So I work with both Joey and Richie um at some point. Joey Longer for I spent a couple of years with him. But yeah, know the whole Irish crew there.
1: And Julian Bradley, does he ring any bells?
0: Julian, of course, yeah. When Julian came down to Atlanta started working with Joey, we would practice together, so of course.
1: Okay, well look, Joe Dwyer has been on the podcast. We actually did a repeat episode with him. It's one of the more popular ones. His stories are great. He's a great storyteller. He's been yeah. with a few players and he is mad, in a good way. He's just mad, but tell us about Joe, maybe if people haven't listened to that episode, they should go back. I'm actually going to ask Joe. Who's back in Ireland now. I'm going to ask him to come back on the podcast soon, see what else he's been up to. But if they haven't listened to that episode, why, JY, should people listen to Joe?
0: Joe's the reason I'm actually still in tennis. I'll give him that credit. Out of every coach I've worked with, you know, there's something I picked up from everybody. But the one thing that I got from him is passion for the sport of tennis i've never been around someone who is so happy on the tennis court loved everything about it Loved teaching the game love love feeling every shot just just taught me how to enjoy literally just hitting every type of tennis ball in every different way his energy on a daily basis is unmatched by anyone i've ever been around and but in a good way i mean it's always in a good way it's incredible so he just infects you with this love of the game of tennis that no other coach had brought to me and, and his storytelling is just gosh you know it's fine I'll, I'll, I won't say the story but there was one time he was so passionate about his story and I was just like you got to be kidding me and then about like 10 minutes after he's like That no, was just kidding that one was was a lie he just told just that was the one time he got me because he knew like I was just so into all his stories if you want to listen to someone who just loves the game that, that's the one I listen to.
1: Yeah, can't wait to bring him back on. So yeah, I'm not sure what episode it is, but just search for Joe Dwyer and it will pop up. But tell me, J.Y., where did tennis start for you and what was your early tennis journey like?
0: I started tennis at two years old. Both my parents played tennis professionally. So naturally, you know, when they were, my dad had an academy and my mom was there as well. So naturally, got to bring the kids somewhere. So so they brought they brought me over to the tennis courts and started playing at the age of two. And, and that's how I got into it. I mean, my whole family played tennis, uncles, grandparents, everyone. They're all from Argentina. Uh, tennis was big back there, still is. So they got me into the game.
1: Uh, what sort of ranking did they reach?
0: So my mom only played one year fully. And then she stopped, she stopped playing to travel with my dad all the time. My dad got to uh, top 100 singles, doubles and played he played all the slams so yeah he he had a successful career money was very different but as far as results and i mean if if he would have been playing right now the kind of money it would have been you know more successful for sure
1: yeah i know things are changed things have changed and tell me so your junior days you, you stuck playing tennis you played a few junior tournaments did you travel what went on there
0: I I, I did it all. I only played tennis as as far as a a sport or officially. Yeah, I played other sports for fun with friends, but tennis was the only thing I did. I I traveled all the tournaments in the states, which there's a lot of. I mean, it's a pretty big country, so you can travel far. And as soon as I got to high school, I think fourteen, turning fifteen, my goal was always to be like my mom, my dad. I wanted to play pro, so that was the only thing I cared about. College tennis wasn't even. I, I didn't even think about it. So. As soon as I got the chance to homeschool and travel and start playing ITFs and get my ranking up, I did that. You know, at 15, I was in South America playing all those tournaments there. Did the same thing at 16, played in Europe. I mean, I didn't do enough in Europe, but I, you know, I tried. And then I think my ITF ranking got to about 150 before I, I started playing futures and stuff like that to see if I could go pro. So yeah, I did all that. Played Junior Davis Cup. I fortunately got a walk on Junior U.S. Open. Had that experience, which was great. And nationally i did well i mean i was i think it was top five or top ten in every every division on the way up
1: and who was on your junior davis cup team
0: the qualifier was me dylan arnold who went to play college tennis didn't play pro after and donald young donald young was on that team and then the team that went to go play in spain for, for like you know the final groups was me marcus fugate and spencer Vigosen, and none of us really had successful pro careers but, uh, I mean, I, that just shows how tough. I mean, though Potro was playing, you know, that, that was one of the players I was playing. I mean, that age group was tough. I played Cilic. I remember Chilich was the team that took us down.
1: What was the Potro like as, as a young kid?
0: Same as an adult. Just nice to everybody. Just always in a good mood. That, but the one thing that always stuck out to me was that even at that age, just not afraid to play anybody. Felt like he could beat any player on the court any day of the week. Just a nice guy overall to everybody.
1: And did he have a hammer forehand back then?
0: No. So to me, that developed later. I always felt like his backhand was way better in juniors than his forehand. But the interesting part was, so he wasn't that tall when he was a junior. He was a a little taller, but, you know, within normal. So, I mean, he developed great movement, great, you know, footwork, could fly around the court just like a player who was six feet tall so that when, when he got to be that height, I mean, he already had his movement developed because, I mean, he got to be a lot taller than even a lot of us expected.
1: Nice. And what about Chilich? Chilich,
0: Man, same thing. He, now, he was, yeah, he was a little bit bigger at that time. Definitely big serve, big forehand, and a good mover as well. I think for a lot of these European and South American, I think even if you were a little tall, like it wasn't like, okay, we're just going to develop serve and forehand and that's it. You're just going to be this power hitter. I mean, they still grew up on clay courts. They learned how to move. They learned how to slide. They learned how to hit drop shots. There was an all-around development where, you know, I think sometimes when you're in the States here, you kind of get to be a, a bigger player. It's, all right, let's hammer it away. Yeah. And just, 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 just bomb people away. And I think, that, I think that's the you know where I think now they've started to play a lot more on clay courts in the country here with, with juniors, just to try to develop that overall game as well.
1: Nice, it is important. And just just staying at that age, or maybe even a few years younger, you say your parents were both players at an academy, and was there pressure from them for you to play, or was it your own decision you wanted to play?
0: I never felt pressure from them. I wouldn't say I looked to play other organizational sports either. I think I played a lot of that with my friends and stuff. I mean, I, I genuinely loved playing tennis. There were, of course, times where, you know, and I, I try to give parents this, the, this experience where, I mean, I was all in on tennis five, six days a week, playing tournaments and everything. I mean, I think at the age of 12, I quit for a month. I think I, later on, I quit again. 18, I quit again. I mean, there was always moments where I'm like, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. But I always came back. And it's not like I went to another sport and said, it's because I, I want to play basketball or something. I just needed a break. And that's it. And as soon as I got that break, And I just saw some other people playing some tennis. I'm like, I kind of want to hit that forehand again because I I love just hitting forehands as hard as I could whenever I got it. So, yeah, I I love that feeling. I love that feeling of playing on the court. I I was big into just figuring things out and try to beat people different ways. I mean, I think, you know, my dad being Argentinian and and my mom as well, growing up on a clay court, they taught me the slice, the drop shot, the angle. They taught me all around game so that when I – you know, I, I love trying to beat people in different ways and mess with them to see how I could break them down. So, yeah, no, I know that was it for me.
1: And what happened then oh, at the end of your junior day you start playing a few futures? What was the next step?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's kind of a weird dynamic when I look back. So, yeah, I got to the point where I, I was close to making qualities of, of slams. So, I'm like, okay, great. You know, maybe I can, this is the next step. But then the, I just... Couldn't make that next jump. You know, I guess I put too much pressure on myself to make it into main draws of slams and I started losing every ITF match possible. I mean, it, it was a joke. I, I think like I haven't gone back and, and checked this, but my memory tells me I lost close to like 12 first rounds in a row. I just couldn't, I couldn't win a match when it counted. So, and this is around 17 years old. Then, but then I'm playing futures and I'm qualifying. And, and like I was beating guys, maybe find around qualities that are maybe eight, nine hundred in the world, thousand. So you know these guys are better than some of the junior players I'm losing to. So I think okay, well, you know, who cares about juniors? I want to play pro anyway. And but the thing is, I still never got that one point even in juniors. So because that's how tough it is. I mean, qualifying is one thing, but to then go pro, I mean, you need to be ranked pretty high to skip college. So you you don't go pro if you're ranked like a thousand. So and I, I just couldn't make that next jump so that's when i realized i fortunately i was i was honest with myself and my parents let me make the decision and i said yeah i i think i need to go to college i, I, I don't think i'm good enough to go pro right now, and, and that's what i did to try to take my game to the next level
1: and where did you go to university
0: i went to florida state university proud Seminole.
1: and how many years you there how did that go did you try play tennis after there
0: interesting times so i played four years but I almost left after my second and third year because after I had a really good second year. So I picked up my first two points after my freshman year. So, but it was only two points, you know, because I I tried to play every summer, but it wasn't because I was trying to go pro. It was more like, well, just, just keep playing, keep developing, do something in the summer, stay fit, and get ready for the next season. Picked up two points, great, went back to my sophomore season. I had a great sophomore season. I, I think I got top ten, I think set eight, nine. I'm not sure what I got to, but it, I, I got pretty highly ranked in college. And then I had a great summer where, you know, I, I beat a player, Nathan Healy, my first tournament. And it was it's just so funny how it works. So I'll try to keep this short, but I beat Nathan Healy in my first tournament future that I played out of college he was like 300 in the world at that time so i was like oh wow i just beat a guy 300 and then i had a 15 year old kid second round so i'm like i'm already looking at quarterfinals right <laughs> i get smashed smashed i was so humbled to this 15 year old kid and now looking back that 15 year old kid was dennis kudla who oh, dennis wow. you know went he went straight pro got to 60 in the world i mean great player still playing there right now so it's funny how that worked out but then I went. I went semis, won a future, and finals three weeks in a row. And then by the time the summer finished, you know, I got a wild card into the qualifying of the U.S. Open. I, I won my first round. And I lost a pretty good second round to a guy who actually ended up qualifying. Bjorn, Bjorn I hope to say his last name. Well, Bjorn Foul or Bjorn Powell. Okay. And he ended up playing Nadal first round. Wow. So I was like, oh man, that, that would have been a cool experience. But anyways. So I finished the U.S. Open, and I'm the highest-ranked collegiate player professionally. And I'm just thinking, man, I'm at the U.S. Open. I got that vibe. Everyone's around me. And uh, the coach I was working with at the time was there. And I was literally so close to just going pro right there because, I mean, I felt like I need to roll with this. My game's in the right place. My mind's in the right place. I've got a coach around me. I've got a lot of support. When you have your confidence high like that, you want to try to ride it. And it's too, I'm like, look, before I make this decision, let me go back to college. I mean, let me, let me go back home. Let me just take one day. And classes were starting in two days. <laughs> and I had not signed up for classes. So even my coaches were waiting for me like, uh, are you coming back? So I came back and uh, I decided for whatever reason, I just said, look, I, I don't think I'm quite ready. Like I still love – I loved college. I love being around my team. I loved having friends, which is something that I struggled with in juniors. Once I started homeschooling, I, I just didn't have many friends. You know, yeah. my friends were at the tennis tournaments. So when I came home, I, I wouldn't say like I had a great social life. And I, so I just loved that environment, and just I was around my friends every day. I was living with my friends, but still practicing hard, training hard. So I'm like, look, just not yet. So let me go back to college, and I'm like, let me let me see if I can win NCAA's. There's a U.S. Open wild card on the line. I'm the highest ranked professional player playing college tennis. So there's a good chance like I can have an even better year and, re- and really set myself up for maybe some sponsorships, wild cards, everything after my junior year. Well, I started to have a terrible junior year because I put all this pressure on myself and I really struggled that year. I, w- I was able to get it together halfway through the year. But the, fir- the first part of the year was I put so much pressure on myself, nothing by my coaches, nothing by my parents. I literally did it to myself because I felt like my dream was so close to like playing pro and I, I want to do everything so perfect. I cut out every bad meal. Like I, st- I really limited how I went out in college and it was actually the worst thing that happened to me. So the, the more I did off the court to be perfect, the worse I played on the court. I mean, it, it, it was just the way I worked. So then come uh, once the season finishes, I'm like, well, maybe I'm going pro. And I, I had a- I played two tournaments. I did terribly. And I just said, that's it. I'm done. I'm going back to college. Like I, I burned myself out mm. trying to go pro. And I put so much pressure on myself in the wrong way rather than just kind of just letting it be a, a natural development of my game. I, f- I kind of forced it. I wanted it too much. And uh, went back to college, finished up. And I, I was just so burnt out with tennis, with what I really what I did to myself, that's where I put the rackets away in the closet and where, where I told you prior where I went to go work in finance for two years.
1: Yeah. So how was that two years in finance? Did you realize the end of it? This is not for me.
0: So my, my, my first job I actually liked, it, it just a small financial firm in Tallahassee, great to get my feet wet, just get started. I, I was a, working to be a financial advisor. And then after about eight months there, I got an offer to work at Morgan Stanley in Miami in the private wealth management office, which is the, in the Latin American division. So at the time it was their second largest division. And by the time I was there a few months in, it ended up being the largest division in the bank, you know, with, with assets under management. So I, and I was working on my progression towards working for a hedge fund, but So when I got offered the job, I was like, of course, I want to take it. I want to get to a hedge fund. This is the next step. Boom, went to Miami. And within a week there, I was like, this isn't for me. But the thing is, I'm not going to quit at that point because I made a commitment to them. So I'm going to go down there and I'm going to go at least a full year because that's the right thing to do. And I think one of the things I learned is you're never quite sure of what job you just took up until about six months in anyway. So I just said, look, just see what you can do, see what happens. And just the environment just wasn't for me. I mean, I I still love stocks. I still love trading. I was looking at the markets this morning before I jumped on here. I still love that stuff, but the environment and of what I was doing, that wasn't for me. So the stress was too much. I struggled to handle it. And after about 14 months, yeah, about 14 months in, you know, and I'm watching people playing at the French Open that I like. I played in in college and beat them, and I see other guys moving up the ranks. And here I am, 20 extra pounds, sitting in the office. You know, two computer screens in front of me, and I'm just like, you know what? If I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life, I want to at least know what it was like to have been a, a professional tennis player. Uh, nice. And, and it wasn't about at that at that point. It wasn't like, oh, I think I can make it to a Grand Slam. That wasn't why I was doing it. And it's funny because one of my bosses even said when I told him I was leaving to go play professional tennis again. I Man, I hadn't played tennis in like two years, so I just hit some balls with friends. But that's it.
1: You're in Miami, like the the home of tennis in the states, where everybody plays tennis. All the American pros play there at some stage. All the coaches are at the academies there. Were you not interested in checking out the academies, playing a bit there at all?
0: When I was working down there, yeah. It was impossible because I was in the office from 8.15 a.m. to 7 p.m. Those are my hours. So I'm just so tired at the end of the day. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm actually trying to get to bed as soon as possible just so I can wake up and have some sort of mental energy for the next day. So the last thing on my mind was, was tennis. The, all I want to do is just try to relax, take a break, and, and be happy. So, yeah, the last thing on my mind was tennis. But, you know, just watching more tennis, you know, a lot of people in the office were big tennis fans. So, you know, we had every slam was on the TV in the office and everyone's watching and following it. So that's I stayed interested in the game, but I, I didn't even have the time or energy to think about playing. About eight months into that job at Morgan Stanley, I went to go play with one of my old college teammates who was at an academy at Nick Saviano. No, not Nick Saviano's, Harold Solomon's. In fort lauderdale i went to hit with him and i'm like wow this is fun but didn't think much of it then i went i played with a friend of mine who came down from a trip and he stayed at my place an old roommate of mine i played tennis with him and i was like well, this was fun and so i was like just, i'm enjoying this a lot more than what i'm doing or at least i'm finding more happiness so when i told my bosses i was leaving i said look i He he told me, I won't say his name, but he was right with what he said. He's like, you know, financially, you're making the dumbest mistake of your entire life. Because, yeah, I mean, to go play professional tennis, we all know there's no money unless you make it into the slams. So, Mm -hmm. And and you know the path you're on in finance. Once you're a couple years in, you're going to be doing pretty well. And I said, look, this isn't about that. I know that's a dumb decision. I'm just trying to find some sense of happiness right now. And, And I think... The tennis is the one thing that at the end of the day, when I was doing it right, I, I did find a lot of happiness in it. So I have to start there. And that's it. And that's how my journey was back to tennis.
1: And so you went playing a little bit?
0: Played four years. Did okay. I mean, when I compared to my work with Riley, I don't think it was okay. You know, I won, I think, 17 events, 14 of them in doubles, all futures that I won. I got to 450 singles, 280 doubles. Not bad in four years after not playing uh, for two years. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if I did go pro after my sophomore year when I was probably play, I was playing my best tennis for sure. But you know what? I'm happy where I am. and I'm happy how things turned out.
1: And when did you move into coaching then? What door opened up for you?
0: So as soon as I stopped playing, I was just kind of teaching. Not sure of how, what direction I wanted to go. And I actually, that's when I started working with Riley Opelka for the first time. Um, He just needed a part-time coach because he had just turned pro, but had a lot of injuries. He was working with Diego Moyano at the USTA. But Diego was also working with Tommy, Tommy Paul. Tommy made a big jump to 300. So they were at two different rankings. So Riley needed someone to to work with him until he got back up. And we started on a short-term basis for a month. But it wasn't a full-time job. And he was still playing future, so it's not like financially he was in a position to, to even offer me a full-time job. And that's when I first got – I was still interviewing at some places trying to figure out what to do. And I got offered a, job, a full-time job at a country club in Atlanta, at Cherokee Town Country Club, which is one of the nicest clubs I mean, I've ever been around. And they had a program with over 100 kids, and they were looking for someone to run the junior program there. And nice salary, a lot of teaching hours and pretty much guaranteed income. And I needed guaranteed income after putting myself in debt after playing for four years on the future circuit. Recently married, had a wife. So I said, Riley, look, man, I, I'm sorry, but financially, like I have to take this job. I, I, I need to pay off my debt. I need to do it as soon as possible. And then he was like, yeah, no, I totally understand. Not a problem. And so that, that was my start into tennis as far as coaching went. And a, a year, about a, a year and a half into that, you know, the program I was running ended up having over 150 kids, but different kind of tennis at country club tennis. Now, I've never experienced it. So I'm, I'm glad I, I went and did it. I was working with a lot of adults as well and ladies clinics. and But again, there was something that just wasn't quite for me. I, I didn't quite pinpoint. I didn't know what it was. And that's when I got a call from the USTA asking to keep the story short. Riley, again, now he, was, he had gotten up to about 120 in the world, but fallen back to 250. And I get a call from uh, Brian Bolin at the time, was now running the, the USTA. And, and Brian Bolin gives me a call and he's like, hey, we're looking for a coach for Riley, but this time it's full time. So we need you to travel about 30 weeks of the year and financially you'll be okay, and you get to work with Riley, and I knew how good Riley could be at the time. And they said Jay Berger is going to be the coach that oversees everything. He's working with him at home, and he's going to be directing everything, but you're the guy that travels with at home. He's 250 in the world right now. We know this is a guy that can be top ten in the world. What are you going to say? And I looked at my wife. I asked her if she was willing to go through – more years of me traveling on tour. And her first question was like, look, as long as I can travel with you to some of these tournaments, I'll do it. Both Brian, Riley, Jay, his agent, everyone said, yeah, not a problem. Boom, jumped in. And then that's how the, the last four years went.
1: Nice. You, don't mind me asking, how old were you? You're still pretty young, like late 20s.
0: Yeah, geez, gosh. So we started 2018. You know, you stop counting how old you are, the older you get, I realize that. Yeah. So I'm 34 now. I, I had to... I just turned 30. Okay. I was 29 when we started talking and we just turned 30, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was young. I mean, I was, there were still a lot of players that are older than me still playing. Yeah. I felt young when I first got on there. I mean, it was weird, you know, especially when you first started playing ATP events and here's this young little 30, 31 year old just showing up to these big events and, Fluttering and Dallas walking around. I'm just, I feel like this little kid here, you know, but I yeah. have to be a coach.
1: Well, yeah, but I suppose the younger coaches are a bit more, you see a lot more of them in the female game rather yeah. than the male male coach who seems to be a bit older. But what were the four years like working with Riley, watching him rise to what, top 20? I'm not sure of his highest rank in 19. Am I right saying that?
0: Yeah, so he's 17 now. Okay, He's 17 now, but the highest we got uh, before I stopped in November was that he got to 19 last summer. So, I mean, it's, in, it, it's such a great journey because we went from the challengers to the tour. He Not only did I see him grow, I mean, he was 19 when we started. So I saw him change not just as a player, but as a person. I think the same goes for me. I mean, I was still growing up as a coach and, and learning things as a person, learning things from Jay, how to handle things, the support of the USTA, and just, just learning the ups and downs of the tour, learning what it's like to travel all over the world, going through some challenges, then the, then the, then the ATP tour. I mean, it was an incredible journey, with, but there were some great moments, some awful moments. Gosh, there, there were some really rough moments. We laugh about it with Riley now. But yeah, I mean, it was just great to see the rise because then I got to see so much of the development that could still happen at that part of your game.
1: We want to talk about your best moment and your worst moment. But before, maybe you can tell our audience and viewers what Jay Berger's credentials are, and he was working directly for the USTA at the time.
0: So not anymore. He, he had finished, uh, I don't know if it was the summer prior, you know, but not that long before. So Jay w- w- was head of USTA Player Development. He did that for quite a long time he was top 10 player in the world i think he got the number six in the world in singles as a player head coach for the olympics assistant davis cup coach he coached jack Sock when jack got first got to eight in the world he was there for that run in paris and in the, in the world tour finals you know he worked for usta for, for many more years uh, i mean his credentials are not not many more coaches have better credentials than what he does so and i've known jay you because know, he was living in the Miami, Miami area for as long as I can remember. And so I knew Jay since I was 11, 12 years old. And when I grew up, I, I spent a lot of time with the USTA and the juniors as well. He was already working for them at that time. So for him to then, and then when I tried to go pro, Jay was running the USTA there. So to have him be the person overseeing everything that we were doing, I was like, it, it couldn't be any better. So, and I, I give the amount of things I've learned from him on how to manage everything. There's no way I would have lasted that long on my own. There's no way. I didn't have the experience. They took a chance on me, but I think they, you know, I had no professional experience at that time. And that's just a fact. but they took a chance on me with knowing that Jay was running everything. And I, I was grateful for that opportunity.
1: So we we'll start off. What was your toughest moment on the road over the four years with Riley?
0: toughest moment for sure was Panama City Challenger. That was uh, not just that it was Panama City Challenger. There's just a lot of things. I mean, he had lost a couple matches in a row, I think, at that point. You know, he had lost. He had match points, main draw with Fritz. He'd gotten a wild card. He had match points first round, lost that match. We get to Panama City Challenger. I mean, it's just so hot and humid down there. And we tried to go down a couple days early just to try to get used to the heat and humidity. The courts were in awful condition. We couldn't find the showers at the tournament. There was one little room with one AC that all the players were crammed in. You had to be careful sliding because there wasn't enough clay on the court. So sometimes you'd dig into the court and you'd get stuck. So you were pretty careful that you could really get hurt on some of those courts. I think Riley ended up losing first round. But I remember he, I think that tournament ended up changing balls. They ran out of balls, and they changed balls in the second round. I mean, it was just it, it was just rough. It was rough. I mean, it, the, the, the tournament shuttle didn't have air conditioning on the way to the courts, so it was just so hot. None of the Ubers or cars there had air conditioning. It was just a, a tough experience because you get spoiled playing some of these tournaments, in a lot of the tournaments in the States, and it was eye-opening. So it was a tough experience, but it definitely made us appreciate going back. I'll never forget that experience. You know, we've had some other ones too. I mean, I think down two sets to love. Well, our trip to Australia 2020 right before COVID hit. You know, we we, we go to – that's a long flight to Australia. Mm -hmm. He had match points against Cuevas' first round. This is when he's already, you know, top 50 in the world. Match points against Cuevas' first round, loses that. We go to Melbourne Australian Open. He's up two sets to love, rain delay then loses to Fognini. This was Fognini first round, loses in five sets. And that's how we go home. So those are just two memories that just really stick out.
1: And what sort of loser is he? Does he get over quicker? Does he go quieter? Can you chat to him? Or is the flight home complete silence? You sit down the back and he's in first class.
0: Now, he, he takes things remarkably well. Sometimes I was like, like, Jay, I feel like he should be more upset. You know, like, because I take things pretty pretty hard. I get over them at some point, but it, it's hard for me. And, I, and with him, within thirty, forty five minutes, sometimes even just ten minutes, he's over. I mean, I think he does such a good job at not overthinking things and just having you know the idea of what his long term goal is and always has been, and not one match or one tournament really takes too much importance. So it's and, and we've always stressed that. Yeah, we always said, like, look, it's just one match, one day, just learn from it. But even then, in the moment, it's so emotionally hard, and, and he just handles it so much better. Yeah, in, in that sense, he's great to be around after those losses. So yes. just give him 20, 30 minutes, and it's out. It's over. It's gone. Move on. High fives all around. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's impressive.
1: Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. What was the your best memory?
0: Well, winning New York Open when you won it for the first time, I mean, getting your first title... That was a, a stressful, stressful final. So I remember he had match points earlier in that tiebreak to, to Braden Schnur. And he, go, he makes a big first serve wide. Schnurr guesses right, rockets a return back. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know. He ends up, and, and, and it was crazy how he ended up winning it because I don't know what the final tiebreaker score was, but I think it was like eight all. Schnurr thinks he hits an ace. And so and the, at the time, they're using this Fox challenge system. I don't know what it is. They use it in the States here. So he hits an ace, and Riley's like, I'm just going to challenge it. You know, it's close enough. But Schnur hits the balls. All the balls come over to Riley to serve. And it turns out that the thing is a little bit slow. Like, Hawkeye is definitely faster in getting you the call back. So it turns out it was just barely out. And so all the balls have to go back. Schnur has to go back. He has to go from return position to serve. I think he ends up double faulting. So he, go, he goes from up championship point to down championship point. Riley serves, Ben, Ace. See you later. I mean, that roller coaster of a final was incredible. And also the semis, because he beat Isner in the semis in three tie breaks. I mean, three tie breaks is, is stressful enough with, with Isner just because you don't know when you're going to get a return.
1: I think those two, Isner and Riley, have played more tie breaks between themselves than others have in their whole career.
0: Yeah. It's funny because I, I think they'll they understand and they're not going to take it personally when I say this. But a lot of times I'll hear people like, "Oh, I can't wait to watch that match just to see like Serms bombing away." I'm like, "Really? You want to watch that match? You know, or just just get to the tiebreak, just show up at the breaker." But they did play once in Australia. The first time they played, they actually broke each other's serve.
1: 2019 was it?
0: 2019.
1: I'll tell you a quick story. I was in the tunnel going into the player area that time and Isner just come off court into the tunnel. He took his rackets out of the bag. Nobody, He was kind of hiding and started smashing them. He was pissed, so yeah. pissed. I was like, oh God, I better run. I don't want, you know, he's going to come after me now if he sees me do that. But rackets came out of the bag and smash, smash. And I was like, whoa. So I, I knew there was fire that day. Yeah, he,
0: he was a little bit on edge. He was a little bit on edge that match. I think I think for him that, that year, I mean, he, he typically hasn't had the best starts to the year. Or he had gone through a couple seasons where just and he, he would always, I think he would always play Auckland and go play the Australian, and just wasn't having great results. And look, it, it's like to go that long you know, of of a flight, you're a seated player, you want you want to win a couple matches. So yeah, I think he had lost. A, pretty sure he had. Lost, if I'm not mistaken, he had lost to Fritz already in Auckland first round. So he comes, and then it gets down a set, and you could see he was on edge. Cause it's, it, yeah, those matches are stressful because you just don't know if you're going to get a chance, and you might not, and there's actually nothing you can do when you play these servers. So, yeah, that was uh, – but so they did break each other's serve, but Riley – Isner broke first, but Riley broke back. Isner served for that fourth set to go to the fifth set, and, and Riley broke back and ended up winning in the fourth. My, my other uh, favorite memory was probably the two happened to be last year. It was probably Rome making the semis there, losing it down the semis because, I mean, he had lost like five, six matches in a row at that point. We were off to a pretty rough start to the year. And now we're having to go in on clay and in Rome. I mean, just in Europe, I mean, you can get some pretty cold weather even in the spring, kind of summerish time. It just comes and then you got a really damp, slow clay court. And we got pretty fortunate with some weather where we got beautiful weather that week, nice, fast, bouncy Rome courts. I remember even one day he played his early match. I think he played Musetti early in the morning. But literally 30 minutes after the match finished, rain and cold kicked in. Like all the clouds came. It would have been a, a different match, you know, because the court ch- the court changes with that weather. So that was an incredible experience, you know. The, the run in the run in Toronto last year that was incredible because not not just making finals of a Masters, but the players he had to beat to get there. You know, Curios, Dimitrov, Lloyd Harris, Batista, Gute. Sissipas in the semis, you know, losing that first set, coming back to win in three. That was incredible. And then my, my final memory before I talk a little too much is just when he got his first five-set win when he beat Wawrinka in the second round of Wimbledon uh, 2019, eight-six in the fifth, down two sets to one. That that was an incredible match.
1: Nice, nice. So it, it, it's crazy, like, what you can do. You just don't know what's going to happen with these tennis players. Like, you know, they go on a bad run, they can change it around so quickly. But there is the, so many of the American players still don't really play the clay court season. They sort of stay home, don't they?
0: Yeah. It, well, if you go, I mean, really the best thing to go is you just go and you stay. But I think one of the things that happens with Americans is just traveling in Europe, the hotel rooms are a little bit different. You're far away from home. The, the food is different. And so just I think Americans struggle to be there for six, seven weeks in a row playing on the surface that they're already a little bit uncomfortable with. And like I said, I mean, you can have a warm summer or a warm spring. That is more springtime. So you can have a warm spring and it plays faster. You can play a more aggressive tennis, but then if, if you get some cold rainy days, I mean, you are on a slow grind and that, and that's tough. And then you feel like you can't come back. And because it's so you can't come back home and you can't take a break anywhere. I mean, what we've, tried to do a couple of times you know with jay's experience and everything we're like no you go and you train you spend all, all the weeks there you want to take a break don't take a flight back go somewhere and train so we've we've gone to we've got a monte carlo we've trained there we've trained at more toglues and in nice we spent a couple of days last year which i thought was great with riley you know riley sponsored tim van Leer the the gallery they're in antwerp belgium so we went to visit them in antwerp you know, just trying to figure out. Okay, look, we still need practice on red clay. If you go home, you kind of take two big tournaments out. You have three masters there. You have Madrid, Rome, and uh, or is it only two then?
1: No, Monte Carlo. Oh
0: yeah, Monte Carlo as well. That's the third. So you don't want to be skipping these big events. So you want to, you want to try to put yourself in position to do the best you can. So because if you make any run in these clay court tournaments as an American and then you can back that up with a decent grass court and hard court summer, you've, you've really set up your year.
1: Great. And I've two more Riley questions before we go on to what you're up to right now. But first, Riley, question is, what have you learned from Riley?
0: I think probably how to handle losses. I think that that's one thing. But I, I think the other thing, too, is just how different every player can be. You know, I, one of the things for him is, the way he tra- we've learned to handle things for him is, you know, most players, you got to be as professional as you can when you get to tournaments. You, you block outside distractions. You kind of block the social life, you know, because especially when you travel, you can have friends all over the world. There's a lot of different things you can do in different cities. And you try to minimize those things and maintain your energy. And with riding, it's actually the opposite. You know, as long as Riley gets his gym work done, his, 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 his practices in, I mean, it's amazing. I remember we went to Tokyo and he's like, Hey, let's go to a museum. You know, let's practice early in the morning. Cause we're already up early because of the time change. So we practice at 9am when no one was there, get our practice. in. we spent all day just walking around Tokyo. And, and, but that was better for him because if not, it's just too much tennis all day long. Tennis, tennis, tennis. You sit in the hotel room or watch more tennis matches. There's no break. And these guys already play tennis for a living. It's, for him, it's actually okay to do more things outside of the tennis. You know, last year in, in New York at the U.S. Open, he made his fourth, first fourth round in a slam. He stayed farther away than anybody. You know, he didn't choose to stay at, at the tournament Hotel. I mean, he stayed about 40 minutes away, I think, without traffic. But because he wanted to stay at a part of the city where, you know, for the first time, they're kind of easing up some COVID restrictions. And traveling during COVID was pretty tough. So especially on someone who wants – to have some sort of social life and distraction from tennis. So he stayed farther away and we're like, there are days where it would take him an hour to get to the tennis courts. He didn't care. He didn't care sitting in that car all day long because he got to go to some of the restaurants he liked to go to. He got to see some parts of the city he liked. He saw some of the friends that he wanted to see. And that was good for him. So it really just taught me like you have to be careful implementing your own your own ways as a coach and forcing a player to conform to you. We have to learn what works best for each player. Especially when, they're, when they're, they already have a certain level of tennis, that they already know how to play the game and see what works for them and just try to structure things in a manner that helps them. And, and every player is different that way.
1: True. I think it's also what's important is the player really knows themselves well and they know what can benefit them the most.
0: Yeah. And that takes trial and error. And I think that's where if you can take a long term view at everything, you're not panicking about trying to, you know, today's the day we get to number one in the world. And and if you lose, it's all over. You know, it's just every day is a learning experience. And if it doesn't work out, we just learn from it and, and we try to do better next time. You know, I think the one time we did one trip to Europe where we felt like we just we didn't schedule it the right way was what it was. We just said, okay, next year. We, yeah, we weren't happy with the results at that time, but we just said, okay, next year, we're just going to do it differently. And we did. And, and that's it. And, that, and you're always just trying to learn. And if you lose, the most important thing is, did you have good intentions? Did you try to do what you think was best? And that's all you can do. And you have to live with what happens. But, but you got to learn. You got to learn and you got to adjust. And, and that's the most important thing.
1: And my second question was, you said that Riley had upped his gym work training game towards the end of 2021 in, pre- in preparation for 2022 what changed what did he up and what was he looking to do obviously to get stronger faster leaner fitter
0: everything so when when he first started playing pro I think his, his pro career was held back when he was young 18 19 because he had a lot of injuries so foot injuries and back injuries just and so it was just hard for him to make big jumps but then You know, one of the things that we have I have to give Riley huge credit for is at the end of the day, he always tries to do what's best to put himself in a position to get better and, and to improve his career. And so every time he just kept finding out that more fitness, better stuff in the gym, more stuff with the physio, his body was getting better. And so body getting better. He was in less pain. He was a happier person, having more success on the court. And just, uh, obviously, it's not a straight line up where you just woke up one day. It's just, you just try to add things in. And every time we kept adding things in, it was getting better. And then, you know, at the end of 2020, I mean, he was struggling with some knee problems. So he implemented another, added more things to his his workouts, more things to his warm-ups. And his knee started getting better. Back was getting better. And he was was just starting to be happier in general because he was feeling physically better on a day-by-day basis just even walking around so tennis became easier for him he wasn't in pain he could actually play and not focus on just not getting hurt he could just focus on the match and it became more enjoyable for him so so he just made another jump in towards the, the last couple of months of last year I mean he just said you know he, he's getting to the close where you know getting a little mentally tired at the end of the year as any player does he's like look I don't care what my results are. I'm just going to go to the gym as much as I can. I'm going to be the strongest person I can be so that next year I never get hurt, ever. And I think, and there were days where the last couple of weeks, I mean, I think he, what, first round Antwerp, first round Vienna, and then second round Paris. I don't know if he took more than one day off in the gym the entire trip. Every single day, like even after a loss, you know, or I'm like, hey, Riley, today should be a day off. doing something 16 days in a row, take a break. He's like, nope, going to the gym. I'm going to the gym. He's like, I don't care. I'm not going to be hurt next year. I'm just like, Riley, come on. He's like, no, I'm just I'm. I'm going to be fitter. I'm going to be stronger. And I think that's a huge credit to when you watch him play this year is how many longer points he's having. He's willing to stay in points longer. He's not just bailing out. Because before when you would play one match or two like that, it would be really hard for him to get up to play the next one. So – we had to be careful with how he managed, you know, with what the strategy for that match was. Now he's not afraid of grinding out a two set match in two hours, if that's what it takes, because he can come back the next day and he's ready to play. So a huge credit to him with what he's done, not just the last couple of years, but also the last couple of months of last year, even when the results weren't perfect, he was still thinking about next year, my career longer term. And he kept and he kept working
1: very good very good and moving on now from riley onto your own career i know you've had a, a a little baby i'm not sure if it's a boy or a girl boy a little boy what's his name seby like seby balester yes 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 that's Great. the
0: one actually
1: and so obviously your life has changed you probably have to stick around at home a lot more now you're not on the road working with Riley at the moment so that comes with challenges so how are you paying the bills these days
0: yeah so I you know decided this year that I want to be at home I want to be a dad I actually still am going to do just a couple weeks you know I'll I'll be in Houston with Riley giving it a test run to see you know what life is like traveling as a dad you know how it is in a family but so yeah to figure out what I'm going to do this year I started a online coaching website but it, I, I consider it to be the most personalized online coaching website you can find because there, there's a lot of stuff with drills and uh, individual techniques and individual drills to help a player but i didn't really see anything which was what that's what i had to do with riley my my specialty the most important thing i did at tournaments was getting a player ready to play a tournament and scouting opponents and and wa- re-watching their matches and seeing what we need to work on. And, and I've found that at least in this country, I don't, I don't know what, what it's like in Ireland or around the world, but coaches don't go to tournaments here. They, they do their private lessons and they leave and they do their clinics and that's it. Very few players have coaches consistently showing up to their tournaments. And so a lot of players are struggling and dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety in matches because they have no awareness of what's going on and, and no one's telling them really what to do because well they're not there to see what they're doing wrong. So I created this website where kids can send me matches and even adults. I do have one adult I work with, but you can send me matches from anywhere you are in the world and I start to see what's going on, what we need to work on. And the more matches I watch, the more I get an idea of what your strengths and weaknesses are. And then I start putting together a development plan for the player to just help them get to their goal with most of these players want to play college. And if they can play pro, they'd love to play pro. But a lot of this is based on just trying to get to college. So, you know, I help them do tournament scheduling because tournament scheduling, is a, there's a process behind it. You don't just wake up and, you know, there's this idea of just play two tournaments a month and that's it. Well, it's not that simple. I mean, there's a rhythm to playing matches and tournaments and a workup and you want to play some warm-up tournaments for the bigger events. You don't just show up and have not having played a tournament in three weeks and say, well, this is my first tournament of the month and it's the biggest tournament of the year. Like, no, you can't expect yourself to be ready to play. So that's what I do. I I try to help players, you know, I I base everything off of a coach has to watch you play your tournament matches. We do that at the professional level. We do it at the collegiate level. And it's actually done in every other sport in the entire world. And that's why I was so shocked that it wasn't happening in, in the junior tennis world in this country, because it's everywhere else. So of course kids are going to struggle to move up if no one's coaching them during the time that they they compete. Now I know there's no coaching during a tennis match, but it still needs to be watched and dissected. So that's that's what I've been doing. I base it all off. I got to watch your match, and then we can see you know where to take your development plan.
1: Nice. It obviously there's a limit to how many matches you can actually watch. Is so? How do you like a two hour match? Does it take two hours to watch or is it sped up? I know there's apps such as Swing Vision now who cut out all the blank spaces, let's say. They only show you the points. So is that what you use or how do you speed up that process?
0: So I work with a company called Tennis Analytics. So Tennis Analytics, does the majority of the analytics for the professional players. So we used them when I was uh, working with Riley. So they use Dartfish as a platform and the videos upload to them. They cut out all the dead time in between, all the walking. But not only that, they give me a lot of stats because that's one of the things that I was really looking for is based with their stats, I put together an analytics report and I get to track, are things improving or are they not? Because what I wanted to remove was the opinion of the parent or the player. And, and I want to remove my opinion as well because maybe they're just losing trust in me because he lost a couple of matches. But then I can pinpoint the data and say, look, I've asked you to work on this for the last couple of months. It's not getting better why not why are you still playing this way we need to change and then once you have the data to back things up it makes things a lot clearer so yeah i can watch a match without all that dead time i mean so a two-hour match could be a 45-minute match mm. but and but then also what's great about it is it's so much easier for the player to re-watch themselves i mean players need to watch themselves play yeah. i mean that's how they learn so but I get for a kid who goes to school or is training all day and all this that it's hard to sit there and watch a two hour match. I, I understand that a kid might not have that much free time. So but a forty five minute match might be easier. So yeah. or at least to watch the first set one day and the second set the next day.
1: I've spoken to a few people a good few people at Swing Vision and the one feature they all love, they may not use any other feature. It's the dead time killer feature it has where it cuts out all the dead time, you quickly rewatch it and Coaches, players—they absolutely love that. So, you know, I I think you hit the nail on the head there with that, and also too with how important it is for players to, even if you don't have somebody like you, a coach like you, somebody overlooking to watch your own tennis and see it. You know, you you see the truth when you watch yourself play.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, if if professional players who know more than any other junior tennis player on the planet still have coaches with them watching their matches guiding them through it and rewatching it with them. Why wouldn't a junior player right? It doesn't make sense. So because when you're in the moment, you're so emotionally charged up like you think you know, but then I found myself even as a coach, there's so many times and I actually learned this a lot with, with Riley is I stopped saying too much as soon as a match finished because you're never at a perfect angle. things happen very fast. And our own emotions are involved when we're watching. Not, you know, not, not only the player playing, but so we get emotionally clouded. So I was even catching myself thinking that what I saw was one thing. And then I go watch the match. I go look at the stats. And I'm like, I was totally wrong. Thank God I didn't say that because I'd look like an idiot to Riley. And when you start saying the wrong things to a player enough times, you're done. They're going to lose their Fine. trust in you. So I learned to just, if I wasn't a thousand percent sure... I'd just be like, look, Ryan, I'm just not quite sure. Let me me watch the tape. I'll get back to you tonight or tomorrow morning. So Mm. it's so important to watch. You just, gosh, when you remove the emotion and you sit there in a quiet room and you can watch it with clarity and you can press pause and rewind and back and forth in slow motion, it changes everything, makes everything so much clearer.
1: Yeah, good advice. Good advice there. And my final question, JY, is who is your goat?
0: Oh, man. Okay. I guess you're asking Goat, so not favorite player. So, I mean, look, Goat still goes to Nadal. I I do think he's earned it. You know, obviously it was Federer at first. They're each different. I'll try to keep it short, but Federer, what he's done for the game, not just winning, but to grow the game, the popularity, bring fans in. Nadal as well adding to it, but now he's won the most slams. So you have to say he's the best player ever. I do think at the end of the day, this is just an opinion that could be wrong. I think Djokovic will end up with the most slams ever. I I think we'll get back to a point where he can play normally everywhere. I think that's how it's going to end up. Nadal is the GOAT for right now. Fed's my favorite. I think Djokovic will end up taking it all. And uh, we'll see how it ends up. It's going to be a fun finish.
1: And who's the most promising player you think you would have any chance whatsoever of eclipsing these guys? Is there anybody out there right now?
0: I think that part is important possible to say because what's so hard You, I, I always ask this question like for Nadal right how do you still have the desire after winning 12 French Opens to come back and win another one that's just something you can't see in a player and that's something you can't teach and every time someone wants to compare it I'm like we're talking about 22 grand slams now the amount of money that, that needs to be in that bank account the amount of time that needs to be invested is going to be unmatched by anyone in human history so to say that i think i know a player that's going to be able to put all that aside and keep playing to their 40 years old and i honestly don't know i don't think I, we i know we said it with sampras but i really don't know i mean medvedev is on an absolute tear i, I wonder if he's just once These guys keep playing. Nadal, Djokovic, they're still playing. So I really don't know. I don't know. But what's great is what Djokovic and these guys have all done is they're forcing the young guys to be complete players. You have to be a complete player now. You can't just be one dimensional anymore and win a slam. You have to be able to win in so many different ways. And you're seeing that with Medvedev, how he's learning to come to the net more. He's learning to hit more drop shots. He's finding different ways to win. So... We'll see. I I really don't know. I hope my answer doesn't stink there, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's how I feel.
1: Tough answer. All right. Well, thank you very much, JY. It's great hearing your story and hope to catch up in the future at some stage.
0: Fabio, thanks for having me on. I always love talking tennis, so thanks, man.
1: Hope you enjoyed that chat. Great hearing JY's story. We all can't be top 100, top 50 players and it's great to hear, you know, how other players have been living life after the tennis days and how they still stay involved and love the game of tennis. I'll be back next week and until then, thank you very much for listening and if you find the episode enjoyable, please share it to your tennis community. I really appreciate that. Bye.